Monaco and Culture is brought to you in association with the all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence electrified. The Cadillac Lyric delivers a sporty, responsive and agile drive that makes every mile a milestone. This groundbreaking Ultium EV battery platform fundamentally changes how electric vehicles are engineered, delivering charging and power storage technologies that fit seamlessly into far-reaching journeys and daily commutes. The Lyric is a vehicle that balances the sensual and the technical in masterful harmony, where rhythm, form and colour unite. From emergency braking to intelligent alerts, parking assistance to vehicle monitoring, the Cadillac Smart System suite of safety and driver assistant features, standard on the Lyric, means you'll drive with added confidence. While innovations like available supercruise driver assistance technology and Google built-in set a new standard for technical prowess. Take the next step. Head to Cadillac.com now to configure your car. The all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence Electrified. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. During the golden age of high fashion, the name often given to the period between the 1990s and 2010s, getting a glimpse of the catwalk and the revolutions taking place on it every season was a very difficult, if not impossible, feat. On today's show, though, we have front row seats and we're bringing you right along. During the 1990s, three young upstarts, John Galliano, Alexander McQueen and Mark Jacobs, rose to fame, heading the French brands Christian Dior, Givenchy and Louis Vuitton, respectively. Those were all under the LVMH banner. The three were presided over by its chairman and CEO, Bernard Arnault. At a different fashion house, the Gucci Group, another French business magnate, François Pinot, oversaw the work of Tom Ford at Gucci as he looked to build his portfolio and rival Arnault's dominance. Are the young designers ushering in a new dawn of luxury fashion as they wow with their ability to churn out show after show of creative brilliance? Or are they simply elegant pawns in a chess game played by two of the world's richest men? A new documentary series on Sky is called Kingdom of Dreams and it documents this era across four hour-long episodes. While the models might have been impeccably dressed, it reveals that how backstage things were often unravelling at the seams. I'm joined today to discuss Kingdom of Dreams, the era, its iconic moments and its heroes' downfalls, firstly by the writer Dana Thomas. Her book, Deluxe, How Luxury Lost Its Luster, served as the basis for the programme. Dana, it's wonderful to have you on the programme today. Your book is the kickoff for much of the kind of meat and potatoes and intrigue of this fine series. I'd love to get you, if I may, to sort of provide a bit of a list of dramatis personae for this somewhat Shakespearean drama that we see unfolding on Sky. We've got our two mighty fine British designers, John Galliano and Alexander McQueen. We've got Tom Ford, Bernard Arnault, the sort of kingpin of LVMH. But maybe we'll start with him and with LVMH. What was that company and, and who is he and, and what were his ambitions for it um, when you started writing the book? Well, when I started writing the book, the book came together because I was covering all of this for Newsweek magazine in Paris. And I had started out writing about fashion as, you know, not necessarily trends. I was never one of those who was writing about hemlines and heel heights, but, you know, what's news in fashion? 
and news kept becoming, kept being business stories. And I became a business writer as opposed to a style and features writer and culture writer. And I was writing more and more about this man, Bernard Arnault, who was the head of LVMH, then a group of sort of three dozen brands, maybe not quite, and the owner of Dior, which was not part of LVMH at the time. But LVMH, like the household names that it had were Kenzo, Givenchy, Lacroix, and then the Champagne Houses, Hennessy Cognac, Moet and Chandon, like in the name, because LVMH stands for Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy, and some watch brands. But it was not a big thing, but he was becoming a big thing quickly because he was gobbling up other houses through takeovers and through buying them. And I wound up doing a business story when he bought a major portion of Fendi, for example. And then I did a bunch of stories when he tried to take over Gucci in this very, this epic boardroom battle that became known as the War of the Handbags. And I was working on that every week for Newsweek, whether it was for the web or for the magazine. And I was following him and interviewing him interviewing him regularly he was still rather approachable because he liked the fame and he liked the coverage and I remember one time we wanted to put him and do a profile on him in the magazine and his PR came back and said well will you put him on the cover he'll only do it if he'll go on the if you put him on the cover and I thought wow that's pretty vain okay and I said well you know we're a news magazine so we can't guarantee covers because you know news happens <laughs> and sometimes we have to put news on the cover our name is newsweek so <laughs> i don't think we wound up getting we never got him on the cover and they weren't happy about it but i that's what was the basis of the book and therefore the basis of this series because i was following all of this in real time play by play and Arno was obviously is front and center of of your book and indeed this series from which your book comes i suppose the other two sort of businessmen at the, at the heart of the story are Domenico de Sole, who sort of saved Gucci. Um, in the and, War of the Handbags. And the War of the Handbags, yeah, exactly, at dawn or other times are available. And Francois Pino, who comes who in a little later in the story. Yeah. So th- did it seem a great time when you wrote the book, when you were sketching out the, out the book and, and doing all the interviews around it? that these men's story would sort of coalesce into this this kind of Montague and Capulet-like kind of Shakespearean drama that they would sweep all before them and that these kind of formerly dusty fashion brands would become these huge international powerhouse conglomerates selling everything from key rings to, to, to dresses. Well, that's the point. I was writing the book after all this happened and I realised that, you know, I've covered this this period in the fashion industry from about 1993 or four to 2004, when I got the contract, that had a beginning, middle and end, that it had started out these, these original takeovers and the birth and the rebirth of Gucci under Tom Ford, and then the war of the handbags and this, you know, epic boardroom battle. And then the, the lines were drawn and there were now two big groups formed one, was Bernard Arnault's LVMH, and then in response, Gucci Group, which was backed by Francois Pinot and run by Domenico de Sole. And so the story was there, and I'd already done all the interviews. I had all the material, so that's when I went to my agent and said, I think we got a book here, and I sat down and wrote it based on all this work I'd been doing for 10 years. 
And I actually didn't do much follow-up because the story, you know, it had a beginning, middle and end. Yeah. Yeah, it all kind of happened in that period. I mean, you went on to write Gods and Kings, Dana, which is a phenomenal, phenomenal book as well, which mixes the careers of Galliano and McQueen, especially uh, again in, in with the, the these sort of kings and titans of business specifically and their personal stories as well. That's the sort of special source that is offered up in this guy series. Did it feel that they would make good bedfellows to begin with and during that period or happy bedfellows. These very creative young men from the UK who were going off to Paris, they were like, you know, a, a British band breaking America in the in the 60s or 70s, as it were, and a lot of them going off the rails doing so in, in both instances. It's easy to look at this in hindsight, but I wonder at the time if, if it felt that these were these were kind of putting the exclamation mark on the sentence rather than really building, building down into the bedrock of what these brands were, whether they were the icing on the cake or whether they were really the foundation of these brands, these designers. Actually, I found they were the foundation of these brands, and that's what made it such an interesting thing to write about at the time. I, again, saw, because I was not a fashion person, I came from politics, news, and culture, I saw the newsworthiness of their what they were doing and was reporting it for Newsweek magazine, which again is a news magazine, from that angle as opposed to writing for a fashion magazine where I'd just be writing about the clothes. And really realized that there was a parallel between these two, even if they hated the idea of it, that they both came from working class England, that John was the son of a plumber and McQueen was the son of a taxi driver and a black cab driver, and that they both went to St. Martin's, one right after the other, and then they both landed at Givenchy, one right after the other, and that was their, that Bernard Arnault was giving them their big break, and that that's when they got the money and the talent, the, the workmanship talent in the, in the ateliers to realize these dreams, and they had really had to struggle those early years, and they had to make things out of, I mean, McQueen was making things out of you know, plastic wrap that he found in the street and and duct tape and lace and, uh, and fabrics that he bought out of a barrow on Barrack Street, you know, like really scraping it together. And Galliano was going belly up all the time for his first his first decade and, and scrambling around trying to find backers and, and find cheap fabric for his most important shows at, at like markets and things. So their big break came at the same house, one right after the other. And they really did learn the art of couture in the same ateliers and ran with it. And what they were doing with their with these huge budgets and their wild imaginations, which was so different from the French culture scene at the time, was they were putting on these you know million dollar shows that were poetic and had stories and narratives as opposed to just showing you know, the traditional day wear, cocktail evening wear and bridal, you know, in a row because you're coming to buy your Tousseau, which was the traditional way of showing collections for a hundred years. So, you know, they blew it all up and and added this idea of telling stories and having characters. So there was a kind of there's a kind of battle royale at the at kind of all levels here amongst the designers. There's these two people that studied together, but sort of when were were friendly rivals, I suppose, Galliano and McQueen mostly. Oh no, they hate okay. Each other. Well, I didn't want to say that. About. What are you talking? About? They didn't hate each other. They John believed he was superior. He came through earlier. He'd landed a Dior. 
and McQueen was jealous of John's success and under and believed that he was superior in craft, which he was. And because he had that tailoring background, John, I don't, I mean, John could sew on some buttons and make a few things, but he didn't know how to paddle a pell. You know, like that was, John knew how to tell people how to do that <laughs> or find the people to do it. And McQueen actually was a superior cutter and sewer. And John was an artist. He came up through illustration, so he could make the most beautiful illustrations, come up with the most beautiful looks. And McQueen was wrapping fabric on, on mannequins, getting his scissors and pins, and boom, you had a gown. It was a completely different way of approaching fashion. You know, McQueen was wildly jealous of, of Galliano, and Galliano was demeaning or, you know, seemed like he didn't even pay attention to McQueen, but he did. He quietly did. He was like this kid. He's on my tail. He's chasing after me. He's pushing, and he was pushing John to do more and vice versa. There, so there was a rivalry, and their rivalry pushed the entire establishment to do better. That's why we think of it now as a golden era of fashion, because everybody else had to keep up with them where they looked like they were really boring. And just finally, Dana, does it feel like that era was a golden age, a time capsule that might never be repeated or certainly isn't being repeated at the moment? Or does your kind of, does your journalist streak, does your eye for a good story and an eye for a good character rest on anybody in the current scene or any of the brands in the current scene? Because it feels like the brands under LVMH, under the caring group that was Gucci, feel like they, they've become these sort of, sort of impossible to placate international powerhouses that it feels like maybe the story hasn't ended with them but it's much less exciting than it was before i don't think we could ever go back to that or repeat it and here's why there's too much money at stake now those companies were still small when john took over dior i think it was doing 250 300 million dollars a year now it's um i think it's not far from a 10 billion dollar a year company it's a publicly traded company if there's a bad collection, if there's some scandal, you know, the whole thing of John blowing up, but, you know, that impacts their stock prices. And Bernard Arnault loses personal wealth. So there's too much at play, and they have to appeal to a much broader audience because they're selling so much more product, especially in China, and they don't want to offend anyone. Every time there's a hiccup in that's perceived slightly as on PC, we've seen it happen with Dolce & Gabbana, with Prada, with Gucci. You know, everyone's got their crisis communications teams now to put out those fires. There weren't crisis communications teams back then. They were just making a lot of noise and making a lot of beauty. And now they have to be so careful because they're afraid of their stock prices dropping or losing money. Dana Thomas, beautifully put. Um, thank you uh, so much. And uh, yeah, thanks for your time. Dana. And do buy Deluxe, it's still out there. That was the writer Dana Thomas, whose book Deluxe, How Luxury Lost Its Luster, served as the basis for the show Kingdom of Dreams. And now, if nothing else, to prove that uh, some of the relationships forged in that golden era of fashion can stay very much intact, let's turn now to our panel here in the studio. And that is Tim Blanks, editor-at-large of The Business of Fashion and head of fashion at The Telegraph, Lisa Armstrong. Great to have you both with us. We've had some excellent preliminary warm-up chats. We've finally got, we finally switched the microphones on for real. Now, um, there's such rich pickings in this documentary series. Um, Tim, I'm going to start, start with you. 
um, you're you're a talking head on this on this series as well. Did this feel like natural habitat to kind of zero in on as a sort of golden age of fashion, as a kind of particularly interesting um, field to, to 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 harvest for a documentary series? I've maintained that the '90s were the golden age of fashion, almost from the day that they ended. So yes, this is a huge and unplumbed kind of resource, I think, because visually it was definitely the richest time of fashion. And I think personality-wise, as it recedes, you just see what an incredible cast of characters was working in that industry over the course of that decade. And I think that that is one thing that, that Kingdom of Dreams captures brilliantly for an audience that knows almost maybe knows nothing about the time or the people. You really can't look away. Yeah. What were the reputations of the sort of key cities? We talk a lot about Galliano and McQueen and these hotshot young British designers rocking up in Paris, which is pretty much unprecedented until the period at which this takes place, Lisa. What was the reputation of London at that point? And what was the reputation, conversely, perhaps of Paris? London was and remains this fertiliser bed of talent. I, I mean, this stream of talent that comes through, totally sort of untutored. I mean, very tutored, obviously, in fashion, but they never had any business sense, were quite unfiltered. And you can really see that with McQueen once he gets to Givenchy under the whole LVMH umbrella. They have this dual relationship, the designers with Paris, because on the one hand, it's the Apogee, it's the Oxbridge, the Ivy League of fashion, but they also think it's stuffy mm. and they're slightly contemptuous of it, aren't they? They come with all their swagger and their youth and their talent and they're going to tear those walls down and they all get beaten by it in some way or another, don't they, Tim? Don't you think? It's yeah. kind of like they're breaking America, isn't it? It's, it's kind of like a British breaking brand, America, but British America invasion. breaks or Paris breaks them. Yeah, and I mean, what were the reputation of these fashion houses? You mentioned LVMH under Bernard's, Bernard Arnault's stewardship. That was Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy, yeah. but it had Givenchy. It had other things attached to it. What were the reputation of the brands under that umbrella? Lisa? At the start of the nineties, I was the rookie on Vogue, right? So I would be packed off to all the boring shows that no, but none of the seniors wanted to go to. Fair enough. Givenchy was high <laughs> on that list. It was like watching uniforms for cabin crew come down the runway. It was... Oh, At least you know where the exits are, though, Lisa. Don't you? Yeah, well, you couldn't get out of there. Like on a plane, you couldn't leave. Well, funny enough, you say that's harsh, Tim. And then when I saw in that footage on the first episode, I think there is amazing footage in these shows. Mm. They had Hubert de Givenchy coming down with the models. And I thought, oh my God, they look fabulous. It's... So I was just too young to appreciate <laughs> it. I mean, Givenchy... I was doing a show called Fashion Files mm -hmm. all, through the, all through those years. Um, we covered Givenchy always and interviewed him, Hubert de Givenchy himself. And he was, everybody always insists on how aristocratic he was, but he was always putting me in my place because I was this he, was, sweaty it, was he little not a oid. count? Was he was kind of different to Hubert de Givenchy. But he was always putting me in my place for my absolutely execrable French accent and which I thought was not a very classy thing you know mm. he never made me feel at ease mm. but he did play his trump card who was Audrey Hepburn and for his farewell show which was a kind of look back at the, the glory years and she was there and there was a lot there that actually has been fairly well 
rinsed away by everything that happened subsequently to the house with all the designers who've been through there. But, but Tim, you know, if we're honest, I mean, another show that I was packed off to as the rookie that people didn't want to see, and this has also been rinsed from the history, was Saint Laurent. Uh-huh. By the end of Eve's Monsieur Saint Laurent, I should call him. You know, by the end of his his reign there, you know, he was an ill man. And the shows were interminable. Mm. The models used to come, it was very old-fashioned. There would be an announcer, as there had been in the 50s, saying, numéro un, tailleur en, en, suis, en soie gris. And so it would go on for 80 looks. Yeah. And it was terribly old-fashioned. And that's, I think, what the designers, McQueen... And Galliano are getting at when they say, you know, we're going to yeah, throw this all like, in the air. They seem like um, kind of club kids turning up to a debutante's ball. That's perfectly as you kind of paint put. that picture. Perfectly and there's, put. there's, and what, what was the, um, did you feel at, at Vogue in those days, Lisa, that there was this genuine kind of rip roaring energy that these, these young Turks were taking to, to Paris and that there was a kind of going to be a turnover of the kind of old order of things. 100%. Yeah, it felt Because actually it was happening stuff. everywhere. It was also happening in journalism. Mm-hmm. So there had been these grand dames, particularly on the newspapers, these wonderful, very knowledgeable fashion editors all in their little Chanel jackets. And then suddenly you had all this new guard of journalists coming in as well. Tim, did you feel yes, that from absolutely. your... Yes, absolutely, yeah. And, 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 and then the rise of cable TV right. after the supermodel thing kicked in in the late 80s. And suddenly fashion became this branch of the entertainment industry. And with its own star system, the, you know, the designers were like directors, yeah. the models were like actresses. So and you had the, also yeah. with the supermodels, you had the famous boyfriends. Yeah. You know, yeah. you had the Richard Gears, yeah. the Michael Hutchins. <laughs> and so the front row just became a zoo, but the energy was incredible. Yeah, And that filtered right through the whole, I mean, the audience changed, the journalists changed, the designers changed. And, and it, became, it, was, it was in broad-shaped newspapers, not just on the fashion pages. It was on the front exactly. pages. It was on the, on the diary pages, the what became celebrity pages and this series also celebrates the business side of it and it it matches those great creative minds with the great business creative minds and as much as Galliano and McQueen were were, were sort of creative titans Bernard Arnault, Domenico de Sole and François Pino were these kind of these business titans and kind of unremittingly well the empire builders right Tim, can you give us a bit of an idea about how the the series stitches those stories together? Because I think this is this is the brilliance of the story. We're not just celebrating the ex, the creative and party excess of certain designers. We're looking at that amazing period where business and creativity were driving. We're having a game of chicken almost with each other. Right? I think the show is very clever in setting it all up with this kind of Game of Thrones veneer in the music and the opulence of the visuals and the, and the opening titles. It, it just sets you right up for some kind of ooh, extravagant gothic confrontation. <laughs> and in a funny way, that is what happens when you do have the idea of houses. Mm. You have LVMH and you have Pino's um, PPR, which then got renamed as Caring, as these two houses. And the battlefield is fashion and the trophies are the designers. And so it's very, very graphic. And there is a kind of bloodshed 
Yeah. You know, there was terrible collateral human, there's collateral damage in the, in the form of... Well, there's great footage. It, it's not just all... It's not, it's not numbers and oh boardroom God, chat. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of, there's lot of good stuff. There's one photograph, do you remember, <laughs> of Bernard Arnault, with his three trophies at the time, who were McQueen, Galliano, and Jacobs. And I looked at that photo and I thought, wow, they were all the collateral damage. They all in some way or another crashed and burned. Interestingly, in that same photo shoot, Michael Coors was in the photo oh. because he was designing Celine, yeah. right, which yeah. was another LVMH mm-hmm. property. And he isn't in the photos. No, that because you see. he's not. He, he's not Michael's the great damage, survivor. No. Right. Yeah. And I think what's interesting also is they show you had over in Italy, you had Tom and Domenico de Sole, who you mentioned just now. But that was a different relationship because they were a partnership. They were almost telepathic, those two, the way they, you know, they could leave each other to get on with it because they trusted each other implicitly. And that was not the case at LVMH. (laughs) But at the same time, they ended up at the mercy of Monsieur Pino. Exactly. So and that in the would, end, yeah. I don't know what you'd call them, the puppet masters. You're, sorry, yeah. you're making marionette gestures. Because I, I think say. the other thing about the 90s, and this comes across also really well in this in this series, is that until the 90s, although you had these very wealthy brands, they were all family family houses. And in a way, it was a cottage industry because, mm-hmm. okay, maybe they, they all had be- amazing lives, all these owners of these brands. You know, they had fabulous houses, but they weren't multi-billionaires. They weren't being floated on the world stock markets. And the 90s, you know, once Gucci, once Tom Ford and Domenica Tosole pulled off the Gucci, then everybody started to get big ideas. Mm-hmm. And that's when people started falling by the wayside. Where do the clothes sit in all of this? Because this is a fascinating part of the series as well, that Marc Jacobs is brought on to run Louis Vuitton. Louis Vuitton was a a beautiful but fusty old luggage maker. They made kind of three different types of suitcase and that was all you got. And now their name is emblazoned on a thousand different products. Brilliant brilliantly kind of overseen by Bernard Arnault, the head of LVMH. But this is a really interesting thing. These shows were all about selling accessories, yeah. and these, these became known as the handbag wars, right? Mm-hmm. right? Did what, I mean, did that feel dismaying to be sitting in the front row sort of, fashion, of a fashion show where you used to be looking at couture, no matter how stuffy, and suddenly it's how many, how many, um, right. how many handbags can you sell? Weirdly, for me, not, because the clothes were still amazing. I mean, when you look at those Gucci shows or the Galliano shows or or Mark's shows, the clothes were incredible and the theatre was amazing. It was still in the service of accessories, though. I did love Mark's declaration of independence. Yeah, when he didn't show a single bag. His first collection for Vuitton, not a bag on the cabinet. And then, oh, no, afterwards, hmm, I didn't see any bags. You know, this is, you're so right about the the, the footage that's pulled in from all these different sources to amplify the story. So Mm. it's all being told in their own voices. Yes, there's no no overarching voice over here, we should say. But what, what was unique about that particular situation and why it was a golden age is that the designers might have been a commodity in the eyes of the the people who were funding their work but they were a particularly and a particularly unusually and uniquely talented group of people yeah. I mean, to give McQueen and Galliano the means to realize what they had what they had in their heads bottomless pockets to produce those spectacles and 
you know, we we were the winners because they were maybe okay. They were selling. They were designed to sell yeah. accessories and perfume or whatever. Uh, the the things that or key rings or you know. But the 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 shows and the clothes in that time. You say that you say that season. Tim, and that's all true. But there is this, there is some great footage of McQueen who is wrenching his insides out to. Put on these incredible shows For of a imagination, of the budget that, that Galliano and had he right, never well. feels it's enough because mm. he's not getting the praise that he that anyone would crave from the big daddy, who is Arno. You know, Galliano was the golden boy, which is, of and course is the father figure of Domenico de Sole when McQueen jumped from LVMH exactly. to, to, and to I don't Carol. Know about I'm going to be providing a family tree to go with this program. I think. Yeah. <laughs> and, and as Tim said, fashion was very much becoming media fodder across broadsheets, not just Vogue, but the broadsheets and all the rest of it, and cable TV, lots of different places. The rise of the internet, I suppose, right at the end of the period that, that's documented in the film comes in as well. But Vogue itself still kind of stands head and shoulders above, and the person of Anna Winter especially, who's... She's nicknamed the billionaire whisperer, or the tycoon whisperer, or something tycoon whisperer, in this yeah. in this series, which yeah. is great. And we see her; she's got her favourites, of which Galliano was perhaps the most kind of the most favoured. And they get these top jobs. I, what, working for that large organisation, Lisa? How did that fit? You had king making power yourself. No, how did that I had sort of no king making. No, 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 <laughs> no. Anna was the empress. Right. Okay. Yeah, across all of Conan Ast, mm. and incredibly, thirty-five years on, she isn't infallible. No, in that thirty-five years, her whispering has <laughs> borne fruit sometimes, and well, well actually, and, 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 and you know, lemons or whatever, like peaches sometimes, lemons other times. So she isn't, she isn't infallible. But I, I, I mean. Ultimately, I think we have to wait and see what history makes of all of that because her role in that particular industry, I cannot think of anyone in any other industry who's wielded that soft-slash-hard power for as long and for herself so effectively and efficiently, really. the thing about the fashion industry, and it may be true of any industry, but particularly fashion, there's something about... There's a caste system which is manifest in where you sit, whether you're in the front row or the eighth row. And honestly, it really matters. So this creates this already this hierarchy where you have to worship something. It really reminds me of ancient civilizations where they all bow down to a goat or something. <laughs> but you have to have this god symbol. They can be quite arbitrary. And it happens that Anna was very smart and good at what she did. But Anna was that god symbol. Because if you don't have a god symbol, then who's the one? Because it's also subjective in fashion, right? So if you don't have the god symbol, who's the one who's making this all fabulous? You know, and you would see people at shows at the end when it was a new design or they weren't quite sure, they'd all be looking around to see the reaction. Okay. And then they'd and then burst okay. into the... Really? Oh like waiting for the king to applaud a new play in the oh, West End. Yeah. Or so you yeah. say so, ancient, but I, I think it's much more renaissance because... I, I, I think it's I, timeless. I think that that's what... <laughs> the, but no, I do feel that sort of de' Medici, Borgia situation, it feels like a feels like a Renaissance court. Yeah. I think that's, Versailles I think that was is, what I was thinking, yeah. actually. Well, yeah, later I on. Mean, yeah. I, I think the tone of the show very much has that sort of the, Machia- the Machiavellian machinations. It's of, got that going on. Now, is Lisa said before we go, we've got to address two quick questions. Oh. Is fashion subjective? Because 
it seems that the, one of the one of the hard truths of this series is it's called Kingdom of Dreams, but it's Kingdom of Cash. Really, yeah. it's these two big conglomerates, um, and it's and it, it is how many accessories. So you here's sell. what I think: there are certain absolutes, like this is a magnificent piece of tailoring or engineering, McQueen Galliano, mm. but then there's taste, which is completely subjective. My yeah. taste is your, you know, my You're good right. taste is your bad taste. And and that has to be decreed by somebody, whether it's Mark Jacobs, Anna Winter, or somebody working on Monocle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's why I these things exist. But then I think there's the other thing. I think there's relevance as well. And, and that's, that's less to do with technique or with taste and more to do with how you judge your time and reflect your time. And I think that's where Tom Ford proved himself so peerless as a player in this world. And, and why don't we end on Gucci? Because it's become a complete powerhouse. It's become Caring, which is this Pinot-owned kind of huge conglomerate. We've probably all seen The House of Gucci, Ridley Scott's movie around this table. It seems that truth is a lot more, is a lot stranger and a lot better than fiction, though. I mean, this series seems to bear that out, right? The footage, the real characters, and the way that the way that they talk in their own words is far more powerful than anything you can do in fiction, right? Well, what, what's always been very depressing about about any kind of fictionalization of the fashion industry is how wrong people always get it. Hmm. And House of Gucci just got it so wrong. Just like I, I'm Pret-a-Porter, Robert, Robert Altman, the worst movie ever. And, and <laughs> when you say that the truth is stranger than fiction, actually, when you get people who understand fashion, but also know how to make a good documentary that you want to watch... I don't know if it's stranger, but it's much more riveting. We're going to have to leave it there. Tim Blanks and Lisa Armstrong, thanks for taking us from Bond Street to the High Street to goat worship. <laughs> no, G-O-A-T worship. <laughs> no, not all of that is in the documentary series, but much of it is. Thank you so much for both of your time. And that is all we have time for on today's show. My thanks to Dana Thomas, Tim Blanks and Lisa Armstrong. And Kingdom of Dreams is available now on Sky and we highly recommend a viewing. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph chung And Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Robert Bound, thanks for tuning in. 